I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome to Trafe, the only Jewish podcast that believes that both Canada and Israel are racist endeavors. That's a deep cut for all you IHRA fans out there. <laughs> um, Welcome to 5779, David. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, New Year, New Me. Is it, though? Well, so far, so good. Okay. I think, was it every 10 years, your cells totally reconstitute in your body? Is that wrong? I do not know the answer to One that. One of those pop science things, I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we're, we got to focus on the task at hand. Which is? Which is, we have a new episode today. I believe it's episode 40. Oh, yeah, that's a nice even number. It is. And uh, for a little behind-the-scenes action, we're recording at around 8 p.m. I believe there is a provincial debate happening because we have a Quebec election coming up. So we are missing that. So Sam. Yes, David. I don't mean to brag. The Trafe podcast is not a show about bragging. David, you never brag. But I believe on the show today, we have two fairly good interviews. Yeah, that's a brag, I'd say, I guess. We've said things like that before. Yeah, but today I'm just owning it, you know? Okay, fair enough. New year, new me. (laughs) Shout out to 5779. Uh, But Sam, who, who do we have on the show today? So we have Ali Abunima, who's the co-founder and director of the website Electronic Intifada, which has been one of the most important news sites delivering insight, analysis, and investigative reporting on Palestine and Palestine solidarity since 2001. Yeah, and it was great to get to talk with Ali. Um, we, we also spoke with Aya Alazawi, who's a student activist in Gaza at Al-Aqsa University. Uh, she's part of the Palestinian Students Campaign for the Academic Boycott of Israel, or, or Baskabi. And she's also participated in the March for Return demonstrations. And and both David and I are so happy that Aya took the time to chat with us. And so without further ado, here's your episode of Trafe for the 21st of Tishrei 5779. <laughs> Okay, my name is Ayala Zawi. Um, I'm an undergraduate student studying at the Vaccine University. Also, a member in Palestinian Students' Campaign for the Economic Boycott of Israel, known as the SCABI. And I'm also a volunteer in the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions on Israel. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, we have a lot of questions and a lot to talk about. I know we've been setting up this call for quite some time. And, and I thought maybe we could start by just giving people an idea of what conditions in Gaza are like right now. I'm afraid that the picture of life in Gaza nowadays is gloomy. Gaza is, um, has been recognized by the United Nations and human rights organizations as the biggest open-air prison on Earth. We are 2 million Palestinians living in an area like about 360 kilometers only. And the conditions of life in Gaza are so much difficult and hard. It's almost impossible to live in Gaza. We have 95% of water undrinkable. So we have untreated sewage befouling our beach. 
And we have been living under a brutal siege that is imposed by Israel since 2007. So there, there's a shortage in medicine, fuel, and there's no electricity. I mean, we have only four or less than four hours per day. So basically we have 20 or more than 20 hours uh, of blackout of electricity. We can't operate our refrigerators. We cannot even charge our phones. So the very idea of communicating with people outside becomes even worse and harder for us. I myself have was born and have grown in Gaza, and I did not go out or see the outer world. And it's frustrating to know that you're doomed to live in a prison for the rest of your life. Can you talk a little bit more about what life was like growing up in Gaza and kind of the changes you've seen? between growing up and now? Well, one important point is that I've witnessed three war aggressions launched by Israel within less than a decade. So as, as a child, I actually saw too much bloodshed, too much violence and brutality made by Israel. In the first, during the first war, I lost my cousin. And uh, I, I saw how, how much my family was pretty much sad that you lose somebody you love, you know. We always hear all the time about families losing one of their children, or even more. Uh, you know, there's no normal life under an occupation. About 290,000 children in Gaza need therapy and, and psychiatrists after what we have been through, we actually have been traumatized. It's not easy to live in an area that you know no security at all. If you ask me about what safety and security means, well, I probably would answer that I don't know. I really don't know. All I know is that I, I have to get used to hearing airstrikes all day long to hear Whooping and shootings and see my people massacred and killed brutally while the world lifts no finger. I've, I've seen homes demolished. I've seen my people screaming and screaming, but nobody he hears them. And, and these three wars have resulted in more than 3,000 Palestinians killed. Tens of thousands of Palestinians maimed. This is not easy to live with. So, you know, over this entire situation sort of looms the right of return that, you know, Israel is denying all the Palestinians that were displaced. And, and I'm wondering when you first became involved in organizing and mobilizing politically toward the right of return. So two-thirds of residents in Gaza are refugees. I myself am a refugee living in Gaza. I'm originally from Jaffa. I've never been there. I actually cannot go there. And my sisters were forced out of that. And what encouraged me to participate, I've started participating in the Great Return March in the second uh, week. When I saw, like, my people, they were completely unarmed. They were completely peaceful advocates. And this made me like, wow, I mean, I'm, I'm participating in a historical event that I will 
remembering until the last breath of my life. And I will keep talking about it and keep telling my friends, my family, even my children in, in the future. And I've realized the importance of the Great Return March, especially during this context. As I said before, the conditions of life in Gaza are intolerable. I mean, the United Nations and researchers have expected life to be impossible in Gaza in 2020. But now we live in 2018, and I can say that life in Gaza is intolerable. Gaza is not on the brink of collapse. It has already collapsed. And what do you think that people don't understand about the Great Return March who are, you know, outside of Gaza? Because, you know, the, the demonstrations, as well as the repression, have been reported on a lot in the international press. And I'm wondering if there is more to the Great Return March than just the demonstrations. So the Great Return March is a civil initiative. This is number one. Number two, that it does not follow a particular political party. Uh, so there has been, behind it, two main commissions or committees. The first one is the Higher National Commission. The second one is the Coordination Committee. Those commissions include other committees because it includes all Palestinians from all walks of life. So they represent all people, like, for example, cultural committees, we have women committees, we have labor committees, and so on and so forth. The third thing that I, I probably should talk about is that the reason why we went out is to protest for our return, right of return be implemented, our right to return to our stolen homelands, to the places where our ancestors have been ethnically cleansed by Israel. And also, we went out to demand the, the brutal siege imposed on Gaza be lifted. I mean, we have been suffocating for 12 years. You know, we lose souls every day. So those committees aim, aim at telling the truth to the world, how the Palestinians, we have not given up our right of return. And those heroes who have been shot and killed by Israel are not numbers. They have their own stories, they have their own families, and they were shot dead with cold blood. Yasin Murtaja was a journalist who was trying to convey the truth to the world. And let's talk about, for example, Rezana Najjar. Rezana Najjar was a volunteer paramedic. She was trying to save life. And she was shot dead, although she was clearly indicating that she was a paramedic. You know, more than 28 children have been killed during the 2010 March. And the Israeli education minister, Niftali Bennett, justifies the killing of Muhammad Ayyub, uh, among other children, saying that if he had gone to school like every other child, there would not have been a problem. So, in other words, he says that because Muhammad Ayyub was not in, at school, he deserved to die, which is very brutal and, and represents the ideology of Israel. The defense minister, Abgadur Lieberman, has said there are no innocent people in Gaza. So, anybody who lives in Gaza deserves to die. Anybody who lives in Gaza is guilty for the mere fact that he lives in Gaza, or he or she, of course. 
as any human being, we have the right to determine our future, to make decisions, to live in freedom, justice, equality. We, like indigenous people of the Americans themselves, the Irish people, the South Africans, we aim to end colonialism and also apartheid regime. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the parallels between this moment and the first intifada. And I'm wondering if you think there are important differences between these two moments or, or where you think this moment sits in sort of an historical context. Both the first intifada and the vegetarian march bring out of the ongoing Nakba of the Palestinians that began in 1948 and has not ended yet. Um, the first intifada took place in 1987 and ended uh, when the Oslo Accords were signed. But at that time, Gaza was under the direct military occupation of, of Israel, so both the West Bank and Gaza got to see Israeli soldiers walking uh, around us. Now we have the siege, we don't see Israeli soldiers who are living between us. And so we don't have direct confrontations. Um, another thing is that in the first intifada, there was a supervision by Palestinian factions and parties. While, as I said, that the Vietnam March it does not follow a particular political ideology. Uh, about these similarities, uh, I can say that both of them united Palestinians under one aim, one goal, which is liberation. All people participated in the first intifada, whether men or women, young or old. Another thing is that the first intifada continued for about six years, and in the first three years, it resulted in 2,000 deaths. Now we, we have you know, been continuing greater than March, and we've lost more than... 142 Palestinians, let alone the injuries and the maiming and shooting and amputating legs and arms. The Israeli historian Ilan Pepey has called what we have been going um, in Palestine, in particular in Gaza, as an incremental genocide. So I really appreciate the historical context you've given and, and kind of an overview of the current realities. But as as the airstrikes continue and, and the siege continues, can you talk about how you're feeling right now and the sense you get of, of the mood of people that you're, you're talking to and, and people in your neighborhood? Well, we get to hear um, airstrikes all day long. We get to hear um, Israeli drones over our heads, so it's very much noisy and we, we can't concentrate on doing one thing because all that noise makes the kind of distortion. Um, I mean, yesterday, three Palestinians were killed by an Israeli rocket. Any Palestinian is being targeted. Any one of us could be dead the next minute or the minute before. It does not distinguish between women, men, children, young or old. It kills paramedics, kills journalists, kills children. And this makes us live in constant fear that we would die or one of us die. So I would lose, for example, one of my family members 
that I adore and I love because you live in under no security, no safety. And, and here comes the role of the BDS movement and the Britain March. We, we ask people, conscientious people, to exert some pressure on their government to comply with the international law and lead them to cut their military contracts with Israel so that Israel would not import weapons that would use against us, killing us, maiming us, shooting us. I mean, something has to be done about this. Well, I, our thoughts are with you there. You know, we'd love to be in contact as things continue. Um, but for now, I know we're reaching the end of our time together. So thanks so much for taking this time to talk with us. Yeah, thank you for having me, offering this opportunity for me to talk about the situation in Gaza. Um, I, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, it was our pleasure. Listeners, my name is Sophia Steiner Evoy, and I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. Trafe is really important to me because it constantly reminds me that you can make good radio without sacrificing your politics, or quality, or fun, or Jewishness, or anything else. So I'm really grateful for it, and I hope it exists forever and ever and ever. My name is Ali Abunima. I'm the director of the Electronic Intifada and the author of two books, The Battle for Justice in Palestine and One Country, A Bold Proposal to End the Israeli-Palestinian Impasse. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I think that most of the people who are listening to this show know who you are and really appreciate the work that you've done. We kind of wanted to start with a broader question about Electronic Intifada, because you've been doing that work for so long, are there any reflections that you have about some of the changes that have happened in the last several years in terms of doing that work? Yes. Uh, I had hoped that our work, which started in about 2000 or 2001 in the early days of internet publishing, 
I would have hoped that it would have become unnecessary by now because mainstream media would have opened up to Palestinian voices and more accurate information about Israel. But sadly, I think mainstream media is more closed than ever to Palestinian voices. I think the difference is the internet, which has allowed people to access information that is shut out of the mainstream. But I see dangers to that too now with corporate elites now trying to assert control over social media and internet platforms, which really have been the key to changing the narrative and the politics around Palestine in the United States and to a greater extent in the West as well. Well, why, why do you think that's the case that mainstream publications have shifted how open they are in that way? That's a complicated question. I think we know that there is a lot of censorship and self-censorship on the question of Palestine. The civil rights group Palestine Legal talks about the Palestine exception to free speech, and we see that as a very real phenomenon in universities, for example, which claim to champion free speech all the time. Their administrations are active in censoring Palestinian voices or students who are active in support of Palestinian rights. Uh, we see in political discourse the whole phenomenon of progressive except for Palestine, which is a very real phenomenon on the left. We see the institutional power of pro-Israel groups that have asserted that they speak for the entirety of Jewish communities, whether it's in the US or Canada or Western Europe. And they have done so successfully for many, many decades with very little challenge. But what we've seen in recent years is that being challenged, not just from the outside, but from within Jewish communities, where particularly young Jews in North America and in Europe are saying, no, these communal organizations don't speak for us. Nonetheless, those uh, communal organizations still exert institutional power in terms of shaping the narrative and excluding other voices, principally Palestinian voices, but also dissenting Jewish voices. But I think what has changed in the past years is that the battle is being fought and is uh, more visible than ever. And those orthodoxies or those institutions and discourses are facing a real challenge to their legitimacy and dominance. And that, that I think, is a good and positive change. So in the context of increasing Israeli violence against Palestinians, particularly people living in Gaza, how do you understand the current wave of repression? Um, it seems like the march of return is, a, to an extent, how it's been framed. What else do you think is going on? How, how should we understand this current wave of violence? I think it's more than just the march of return. This is a system that sees an existential threat in any resistance. And, you know, Israel has thrown everything it can at the Palestinians from, you know, warplanes to snipers to punitive home demolitions to jailing thousands of political prisoners to jailing children. And Palestinians find a way to resist. You know, the latest thing was tear gas drones. Palestinians brought them down with kites with fishing lines attached to them. So people will resist with whatever means they have. And, you know, of course, we don't have that many cases we can turn to. But I do see 
parallels in how as the South African apartheid regime reached its end, it became more and more repressive, of course, primarily against the black population. But that repression started to target the white population more consistently as dissent grew. So South Africa used to market itself as a liberal democracy the way Israel does. And for whites, it was a democracy. They could vote. They could say what they wanted in their newspapers for the most part, and the repression was targeted at black people. Towards the end, as that solidarity and consensus among whites started to shatter, the repression had to target whites more consistently. And I think that that is happening to some extent in Israel, where there is a determination to stamp out any kind of dissent, for even from groups that are within the liberal Zionist consensus, whether it's B'Tselem or Breaking the Silence or some others. Uh, So I think it's a system that can be called totalitarian in the sense that any amount of dissent is considered a threat. And that's the phase I think Israel is going into. I mean, one, one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on is to sort of help us understand what's happening right now, like how this current moment is different in the ways that it's not different from things we've seen before. And and I think it's it's easy to just talk about, you know, like waves of Israeli repression and the ongoing colonialism and apartheid. But I'm also interested in, in talking about the the similarities and the differences between the the uprisings that we're seeing among the Palestinian people, you know, how they compare to previous ones, especially, you know, the recent March of Return and the ongoing resistance uh, that we're seeing in a lot of villages in the West Bank. I mean, can you talk about how how you see this current moment being situated historically? Yeah, I, I think that we're in a, a paradoxical moment in the sense that I think Israel has completely lost the argument. And Zionism as an ideology, as a political movement, has been totally discredited. I think more and more people see it for what it is. It is raw racism and nationalism. It is settler colonialism. It is something that comes out of the 19th century and some of the worst ideas of the 20th century. Uh, They have lost the argument. But the paradox is that on the ground, Israel is stronger than ever. Its ability to inflict suffering on Palestinians is being used with very little restraint. We've seen in the last decade just horrific massacres in Gaza where Israel goes in with F-16s and drones and missiles and 1,000-pound bombs against an almost completely defenseless, impoverished population that is caged in a ghetto. 70% of the population in Gaza are refugees people ethnically cleansed from other parts of historic Palestine. And you have a first world technological army attacking them with all the most advanced weapons. That happened in 2014 in the massive attack in which Israel killed more than one in every 1,000 residents of Gaza. It's just an immense proportion of people to be killed, and that's not counting the thousands and thousands more injured and maimed for life. And in the Great March of Return, just using snipers to willfully and deliberately target unarmed civilians who are demonstrating their refusal to be caged up in a ghetto and forgotten. 
Israel has given Palestinians in Gaza a stark choice, which is to die in silence or to die violently by snipers' bullets or by bombs with at least the world hearing their cries to some extent. And what, what I mean by die silently, I don't mean that in any metaphorical sense. I mean it literally. Just to take uh, an example, in 2017, the World Health Organization documented that 54 Palestinians in Gaza had died waiting for permits from Israel to leave Gaza to get medical treatment in the West Bank or other places that they couldn't get in Gaza because the medical system has been destroyed by years of Israeli attacks and siege. Most of them were cancer patients who died waiting for permits that never came. More recently, Israel has announced a policy in which if you have cancer, it won't let you leave the Gaza ghetto to get treatment if you have a relative who is a member of Hamas. So basically, you are sentenced to death by cancer for the crime of having a family member who is affiliated with Hamas. This is what Israel is doing to people in Gaza. It is reducing them to a subhuman level. And what humans do is they revolt against that. Sometimes we say it's an easy phrase to say that people have nothing left to lose. But one of the things I'm proudest of at the Electronic Intifada is the work we publish from writers in Gaza, reporters in Gaza, they are predominantly young people because the population in Gaza is predominantly young. But if you read their work, you see that these are young people who are highly educated, who are highly motivated, who are open to the world, who have absolutely everything to live for, everything to gain from being free of this horrific situation. And that's what people are fighting for. They're not going to the fence in order to die. They're going there because they want to live. But they understand that what Israel is subjecting them to is quiet death, and they're not willing to accept it. So, you know, this moment we're in is one where it seems to me that the gap between what is happening on the ground in terms of, you know, Israel's raw power and how much Israel is discredited in the eyes of so much of the world has has never been greater. And I, that's why I think Israel is, in a sense, a zombie state. It has lost its legitimacy. It cannot be revived. The ideas behind Zionism cannot be reanimated. So the moment we're in is one of a raw confrontation of power, where Israel, this zombie state, is trying to maintain its longevity as much as it can. And in that sense, it is like apartheid South Africa in its final years, where they knew the game was up, but it was a question of buying time. But I think some of the differences are that Israel still has a lot more support than apartheid South Africa did. And this period, this zombie period, which is so lethal to Palestinians, has the potential to last a very long time. And what is incumbent on us is to do everything we can to end it as quickly as possible. And it seems like that's happening at the same time that there is you know, a shift going on in the global order, where you have perhaps more regimes that are more amenable than they maybe were 10 years ago, even 
to extending the longevity of that enterprise? Yes, I think that Israel's position has shifted within global politics, just as global politics is also undergoing a, a transformation. And very briefly, what I mean by that is, you know, in the West, which is where I'm located and where a lot of my work is, Israel has gone over the last 30, 40 years from being a liberal and even left-wing cause to becoming a decidedly far-right cause. And how that manifests in the U.S. is that, and again, we have a lot of survey data from various organizations over the past few years that show this, that support from Israel has collapsed among people who call themselves liberals or left-wing or who vote for the Democratic Party, among younger people, among people of color, support for Israel is really in free fall. Where it has been consolidated is on the right, particularly among white people, old people, and people who are more religious, particularly Christian and evangelical. That's the broad brush picture that we see. Of course, we're talking about aggregates and trends. We're not talking about every individual within those groups. And on the global framework, we see Israel aligning with far-right, anti-Semitic, and even neo-fascist governments. This is partly out of expediency, but there's also a mutual admiration society going on where Israel is seen as the legitimate model for racist, fascist, admiring governments such as in Hungary or Poland, but of course, the biggest of them all, the United States, the Trump administration, where we, we saw personified this alliance between white supremacy and Zionism in the White House, where the biggest advocate for Israel in the early days of the Trump White House was Steve Bannon, who is a white nationalist. You know, his, his agenda is well known. So that's happening on, on a global level. And we see the left has Palestine solidarity has become normalized, but we see a global left that is on its knees and struggling to find a place. There are some places of resurgence, and that's giving people hope, and I don't want to, to lose the hope. But look what's happening in the UK. The Labour Party, its biggest challenge is the Israel lobby, because it elected a leader who is historically a strong supporter of Palestinian rights. So we see directly how support for Israel plays into attacking and sabotaging the left in many situations. There's there's another element in the political shift that I'm interested in where I think people have less illusions about a sort of liberal international community intervening in Palestine to negotiate some sort of equitable settlement right now. And I'm curious how you think this has affected Palestine solidarity work in the West or specifically in the United States. Like I know you live in Chicago. I was actually in Chicago in 2014. We had that huge, I think it was maybe more than 10,000 people for the demonstration against the Israeli assault on Gaza then. In Montreal, we, we also had huge numbers and demonstrations multiple nights in a row. But then when the Great March of Return was happening, and then the most recent bombings that happened following that, at least in Montreal, it was difficult to get a couple hundred people out in the streets. And And to me, it sort of seems related, where I think some of these liberal ideas about Western states and an international community have sort of undergirded a lot of solidarity work for a long time. Like, do you see this connection too? That's interesting. I'll, I, I'll have to think about that. 
But what I can say is that in many ways, the collapse of the so-called peace process is positive because for many years, I argued that the peace process, which was never going to go anywhere, if you were a politician and you were challenged by your constituents, you could wring your hands and say, oh, it's terrible. You know, we have to support the peace process and that's the way to end this. Well, you can't pretend there's a peace process here. What are you going to do? What is the U.S. going to do? What is Canada going to do? What is Belgium going to do? And things are happening. It's glacially slow, but people are pushing and they are happening. So in Ireland, the Senate passed a couple of months ago the Occupied Territories Bill to ban the import of Israeli settlement goods. Well, you could say that's a small thing, but it's actually a big thing in the context of European politics, where the Irish government is against it. It was a totally grassroots initiative. And the only reason the Senate passed it is because of that grassroots pressure. Now it will still have to pass in the lower house. But if that happens, it will be a big precedent and others may follow. So it shows that the possibility for political action, even within the constraints of this very limited liberal democratic system that we have, is still there. Uh, and it, in a sense, can only happen once the pretense of a liberal peace process, an international community that's going to come in and bring peace, once that pretense is gone. From from your last answer, it sounds like there's a cautious optimism about how solidarity work has operated in the West in the last 10 or 15 years. What do you see some of the positive changes over that period and, and, and what is worrying to you? There is some optimism and I think there has to be and it's it's a realistic optimism because what has arisen over the last decade or more is a force that is independent of institutionalized political power, which is the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Every government in the world is against BDS. Every major institution is against BDS. Most political parties, even those that claim to be on the left or left of center, are officially against BDS. And yet this movement has succeeded in imposing more of a cost on Israel for what it's doing to Palestinians than all of those institutions that claim to support Palestinian rights have done in decades. Now, you could say it is still very small compared to the reality of what Israel is doing, but Israel considers it a major threat. So that's the reason for optimism. You know, where I feel very sober is, again, looking at the situation on the ground and the freedom with which Israel is able to, to invent new sadistic forms of suffering to inflict on Palestinians. And the fact that, you know, governments around the world, whether it's in Canada or the US or, or Western Europe, react with complete passivity. But I think that that's of a piece with how they're acting in the rest of the world as well, and why this so-called liberal international order is becoming so discredited in the eyes of so many people. And you have this turn to what some are labeling populism. You see the, the far right coming in with, with simplistic answers, whether it's Donald Trump or Brexit or the rise of fascist, anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim parties in, in Europe. And what is 
you know, we're not seeing is a sustained and successful global left. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the left, the the part of the left that we're most familiar with is probably the, the radical left. And in some of the conversations we've had in the show about Palestine and Palestine solidarity work here, this idea has come up that a lot of people on the radical left sort of relate to BDS as representing sort of the entirety of solidarity work. Like if you endorse BDS, you can you can like wipe your hands clean, you've done your work, rather than seeing it as a first step toward uh, you know a consistent exercise of solidarity with Palestinian liberation. And I'm wondering what, what you think about that idea, whether you've seen that happening. I wish I could say I'd seen it happening more. If people just got out of the way for the most part, that would be great. Stop opposing BDS would be a great first step, let, let alone actually endorsing it. But yes, you know, endorsing it is great. Normalizing it as a tactic would be fantastic. And that would open the way for a lot of people to join in. I think it would remove a lot of the fear around it. And that's what Israel is terrified of. Of course, boycott is a very normal tactic in other contexts. You know, in the US in the past couple of years, we've seen boycotts of states which have passed uh, so-called bathroom bills discriminating against trans people or bills targeting LGBTQ people sports boycotts, commercial boycotts, major corporations have said, we won't do business in that state or we, w- we won't hold conferences there. Cities have passed resolutions saying that their officials are banned from traveling to those states. And nobody questions the tactic. They, they may say that we agree with the issue or we disagree with the issue. But it's only when it comes to Palestinian rights that suddenly boycott is this terrible thing. So I think that getting people to understand that BDS is a set of tactics that can contribute to liberation, it is not an end in itself. The real end goal is Palestinian freedom, equality, and justice. And in the last few years, there was an attempt to dilute the BDS movement to kind of appropriated in a way that served liberal Zionist goals. And of course, the poster child for that was Peter Beinart, who tried to come up with this this notion of Zionist BDS, where you only boycott settlement products, whereas, you know, so-called democratic Israel is not boycottable. That totally failed. It failed among Zionists who were completely unwilling to adopt any kind of accountability for Israel. And I think Palestinians and their allies were successfully able to argue against it. So I think that argument has been won. And now when I see people, whether it's parties or institutions or individuals, endorsing BDS, they are much more willing to do so in its entirety, embracing all of the goals that Palestinians have set out, the rights of refugees, including the right of return, the end to occupation completely, and the end of all of Israel's racist laws and policies against Palestinian citizens of Israel. So we are winning that argument. It's a hard battle. But I was in South Africa earlier this year, and people reminded me constantly how, number one, how important international solidarity had been to their struggle. People reaffirm that constantly, that international solidarity was of practical political importance, but it was also incredibly important to people's morale in a situation where 
they faced the overwhelming power of the apartheid state. And the other thing was how long it took to build that international solidarity for South Africa. It took 30 years to build a broad-based international boycott movement. And in many ways, the Palestine solidarity movement is building that much faster. From 2005, when the official BDS call was launched until 2018, I think we've seen much faster uh, progress. So sometimes we can get too caught up in the downsides and lose sight of the big picture is that we are building power and to keep focused on that and to keep doing it. So on the note of focusing on the positive, um, we we have a segment on the show that's called Shkoyach. It's like a, a Yiddish phrase that's sort of uh, sort of like awarding a congratulations to someone or a thumbs up. And I'm wondering that before we wrap up talking, if you have anything you want to award Shkoyach to. Oh, gosh, you put me on the spot. But where I get my strength every day is from seeing the resilience, even the joy with which people in Gaza continue to live and resist against incredible, incredible forces working against them. So I'd love for people to keep them in their mind. Read the writers from Gaza that we publish at the Electronic Intifada and others publish. And I think just to give a shout out to all of the people who are sticking with this cause around the world, I think if we can continue to do that, we're going to see the kind of victory that people in South Africa thought was impossible until just shortly before it came. And yes, I know it's not utopia, but let's take our victories where we can and build on them. Palestinians in general have felt very lonely over the the last 70 years, and we feel a lot less lonely these days, and that is that is a big deal. Well, Ali, thanks so much again for taking this time. It was it was really great to get to talk with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Put down your earbuds, pick up the schach. It's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach! Shkoyach. Shkoyach. Welcome, welcome. Bienvenue, hello. To Shkoyach. Correct, the world-renowned segment. So, Sam, what do we do on Shkoyach? What we do is fairly simple. It's actually a vehicle that many other podcasts use in which we both highlight a negative or positive thing that happened or that we thought of in the last week or two and kind of use that as a basis to have conversation. And what does Shkoyach mean? Shkoyach is a shortened version of two words, Yashar Koyach. And, and I believe that's a Yiddish pronunciation of what is previously a Hebrew word that probably comes from Aramaic that is loosely translated to congratulations, big ups, nice job, etc., what is your shkoyach for this uh, for this episode? My shkoyach for today comes, as usual, with a hefty dose of context. For friends listening at home, we can play a little game. Uh, get out a phone, maybe a watch, and start your timers in three, two, one. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about Palestine on this episode. And this month, we actually observed a few anniversaries related to Palestine. And 
This made it into the media cycle, and we're seeing a lot of reporting about the 25th anniversary of the signing of the first Oslo Accord. It was signed in in Washington, D.C. in 1993. Okay, so pause your timers. For younger listeners, maybe take a break, go on Wikipedia, do a little research. The Oslo Accords are very important part of um, history in that region. Okay, start your timers. Okay, and so in this context of the media just being full of mostly really bad takes looking back at the Oslo Accords and coming to all these conclusions as to what it means now and how it fits, there is this excellent article by Diana Butu that I thought just cut through a lot of this so well. It, it was actually published in Haaretz. The headline was, I advised the Palestinian negotiating team it was a mistake to have negotiated with Israel at all. Which which I guess is maybe still controversial in certain liberal circles. Yeah, I mean, first thing I, I should say is highly recommend reading this article. We, we, we try not to do the thing on the show where we read from articles on the show. I'll try my best not to do that. I think the headline gives you the gist. Um, but it was also accompanied a, a, the same week by another article in Haaretz, uh, or Gideon Levy, who historically has been more of maybe like a labor or liberal Zionist figure who's you know moved to the left over the years. He had an article with a headline, I believed in the Oslo Accords for years, but it was merely a deception. And and so I guess what's interesting about these two pieces written by two very different actors is the fact that that was clear for a, a, a large segment of Palestinians and definitely clear for a certain element of leftists during the 25 years that have elapsed. But I guess what you're trying to say now is that it's interesting to be hearing this from these actors at this time. Yeah, I mean, for Diana Butu, it's it, like she's been saying things like this for years, um, to her credit. For for someone like Gideon Levy, I think he represents sort of maybe like the farthest left of the former peace camp in Israel and comes out of Haaretz. To see Diana's sentiments being agreed with in this kind of publication by this kind of figure, it really does speak to our current moment of this growing realization that these so-called peace processes and, and urgings for Palestinians to negotiate with their occupiers, what, what the function of that has been over the past decades. But wait, David, is this a shkoyach or an anti-shkoyach? So my shkoyach is to Diana Butu for penning this amazing article. I would highly recommend everybody listening read it. And in fact, she's actually going to be speaking, if, if you're near Toronto or going to be near Toronto on October 13th, She's going to be speaking at the Independent Jewish Voices 10th Anniversary Conference. I think it's uh, in the morning at the Winchevsky Center in Toronto. We'll have a link in the show notes. That's such a positive shkoyach, David, and I and I enthusiastically endorse your shkoyach. Thanks, Sam. Anytime. And uh, what what is your what is your for today? So my shkoyach is actually going to take the tenor of a David shkoyach to a certain extent. Okay, let's just take a moment here. Take a breath. Just look out the window and bring the energy in the room slightly down. And on that note, <laughs> Sam, what is your shkoyach? So it's a double anti-shkoyach. First part goes to Sija. Oh, classic. Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. And the interrelated second part of the anti-shkoyach goes to a notorious Quebec politician named Michel Blanc. That's very topical, Sam. Uh, it's election season in Quebec right now. We're in the middle of an election campaign. By the time this podcast comes out, I think we'll be about one day away from the results of the election. That is correct, depending on how effective we are at putting this episode out. But David, there's nothing that brings out the racism of a politician than an election where people are kind of combing through tweets and politicians are being asked to talk about them and they're giving bad answers what are you getting at here, Sam? I'm getting at a highlight reel of racist comments made by Michelle Blanc. 
course. And for the non-French-speaking folks in our audience, David, what does blanc mean? It means white. You can't make this stuff up. Okay, so I'm going to read you a list of comments and or public pronouncements this person has made in the last 10 years, starting with a tweet from the year 2011 when Michel Blanc wrote, Forgot to celebrate Adolf Hitler's birthday. Oh, that's not good. That's a tweet. In 2007, Michel Blanc wrote a blog post entitled, Am I Racist? Was writing about the Hasidic community in Outremont, which is a neighborhood in Montreal. She wrote, Why do they insist on settling in the city center? And it would be so much easier for them and for me that they really disappear from my sight. It's pretty bad. Uh, 2014, she told the Parliamentary Commission, When I see the veil, I see the gays who are murdered, who are beaten. I see the women who are stoned. I see the man-woman gap. That is what I see. Yeah, that's pretty bad as well. I mean, part of the, we should probably give people some context as to what party she's running for as well. She's running for the Nationalist Party in Quebec. It's called the Parti Québécois that has basically run an anti-Muslim, anti-Arab campaign for the better part of the last 10 or 15 years. So it makes sense that they would be running a candidate of this nature, unfortunately. Um, but are there any more uh, parts of the highlight reel that you want to bring up? I mean, the last one I wanted to bring up was a tweet that she deleted. In the upcoming election, she's running against a woman of color. And she wrote a tweet and then for some reason deleted it because she's kept everything else up. People who want to vote white, remember that my name is Michelle. And like we mentioned earlier, her last name is Blanc. Blanc translates to white. So she was basically not even dog whistling. I would say she was dog foghorning, maybe. So I think it's pretty clear that she's a fairly reprehensible candidate. That is actually why she got half of the anti-square. <laughs> right. Um, but, but what does that have to do with the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs? I am so glad you asked. Well, now I am, too. <laughs> so as someone who makes overt pronouncements of racism... Michelle Blanc was facing some criticism from people who don't like racism in an overt manner. And Sija decided to come as a masked savior out of the woodwork to defend Michelle Blanc. What did they say? They basically said they didn't believe that she was anti-Semitic. So, Sam, I have a confession to make. Yes, David? I have been following the story very closely. <laughs> and I was asking you these questions to lead along the segment. <laughs> but my favorite part of this entire story yes. was that this was all happening on Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. And so the Hasidic community were not keeping up on their news feeds. But Rosh Hashanah ended and everybody read the news and the Hasidic community was enraged. I know, David. There was a Fuego quote from one Alex Wurzberger who is one of the representatives of the Hasidic community, he, he said, direct quote, Sija is not the boss of the Hasidic community, neither is B'nai B'rith. And then there was another really good quote. He said, if you want to run on the North Shore and talk about Jews, that's a different story, but not in this writing. That is one of the largest ultra-Orthodox populations in Quebec. So anti-shkoyach to Sija and to Michel Blanc. Okay, so with our with our principal anti-shkoyach side of the way, can I ask you a question? Sure. Would you mind if I give a, a more personal shkoyach now to bring things full circle again? Sure. Okay, I'd like to give a shkoyach to my grandma, my grandma Winnie. Oh, that's nice. She's always held it down, but she's really holding it down now. My grandpa's pretty sick, and she's just been really amazing. And I just wanted to uh, give a big old shkoyach to Winnie. Oh, that's such a nice way of transitioning from all of the negativity of the last segment to a very positive take on what seems like a very challenging situation. So, yeah, shkoyach to Winnie. Big ups, Nanny. It's 
so that's our episode for today. Yeah, and and for everyone who has who has celebrated or or refused to acknowledge Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur <laughs> and Sukkot, uh, I hope it was meaningful and positive for you and the people around you. And if you're if you're listening to the show and you're thinking to yourself, I would love to communicate to all the Trace listeners. I have something that I'd love to share. I have something I've been thinking about, and in fact, it would only take me about a minute or two. Do I have the solution for you? <laughs> and um, you can send us a voice memo. Uh, you can record it on your phone, on a computer, in any way you'd like. A Moran's recording device of your choosing. Just say your name, where you're calling from, and anything you'd like to share with Trafe listeners. So just make sure it's about a minute or two, and we'll air it on the next show. And David, where should they send it? Trafepodcast at gmail.com. Great. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zimmerman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Kanagahaga territory. Thanks to everyone who helps make Trafe Podcast happen, and to Sex Syndrome and SoCalled for the music you heard in the episode. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and now Instagram at Trafe Podcast, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments, suggestions, or hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Seen that that rebel just for kicks song? Rebel? Uh, I'm a rebel just for kicks. Na 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 na. 1986. Nah. Portugal, the man. Yeah. Okay, I've never heard that song. It's amazing to me, David. How you live in this world? How do, how do you hear about it? You're in a, you're in a car. You're in a store. There's just music playing. You go to Jean Couture, like it just it's there. But you know what I've noticed is that usually in stores like Pharmapri or like IGA or something, yeah. they actually have canned music. It's like determined by the store. They rotate playlists that actually don't seem like they're taught like it's a lot of old songs. Interesting. So I don't think I get it. Maybe exposed. you go to nerd Jean Coutures. <laughs> you gotta go to a Jean Couture that's franchised from the mile yeah, end. That's what I do. I would give an early shkoyach to the weather changing because I am such a fan of the season and summer is difficult for me. So I give an early shkoyach to the weather changing. And I hold nothing but contempt for the season that calls itself the autumn. <laughs> so what a, what, a, what a pair we are. You just reaching for that pumpkin out of the cupboard and me with a frown on my face.